Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 2nd, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. The U.S. Supreme Court has more friends than ever. In the last term, a record number of amicus curiae, Latin for friend of the court, briefs were filed, and for the first time, every single argued case was accompanied by at least one such filing, which are submitted by third-party individuals and groups who might represent a viewpoint unique from that of the actual litigants in an appeal, though there is no consensus on whether such parties are correctly referred to as amici or amici. One thing is certain, their number is growing. So, more SCOTUS bar members and constitutional scholars are trying to discern just who these parties are and what impact their increased contribution to Supreme Court practice is having. Four guests join us this week to discuss those questions and a few more. Anthony Franz and Rees Anderson, members of Arnold and Porter's appellate and Supreme Court practice, will be here first to unpack their synthesis of last term's amicus numbers. They'll explain how friend-of-the-court briefs have grown to become an indispensable part of SCOTUS appeals, reflected in their more frequent citation both in court opinions and during oral argument. Anthony and Rees will describe which types of briefs have tended to most compellingly draw the court's notice, and also which justices seem the most interested in these non-party filings. Then, Professors Allison Orr-Larson and Neil Devins from William & Mary Law School will discuss their research on amicus practice, and in particular, will describe how a much higher degree of coordination exists between amici and litigants than one might expect. They detail a system which they term in a recent paper the amicus machine, in which significant cohorts of amici are coordinated behind the scenes, leaving only the outward appearance that amicus filings come from third-party, unaffiliated groups who offer their own independent insight to the court. Professors Larson and Devins also assess some criticisms levied against the increasingly sophisticated and coordinated amicus phenomenon. For instance, that Amici are now friends of the court in name only, and are in reality friends of the parties. These partial advocates, some worry, are incentivized and do present to the court briefs containing self-serving quantitative data or studies of some suspect reliability. Professors Larson and Devins also address the worry that the repetitive population of amicus filers, generally members of an elite and small Supreme Court bar, might tend to put forward a homogenous, narrow view of the world and that held by the legal community generally. Overall, though, they'll tell us why, in their view, the amicus machine is a net positive for our country's justice system. Before hearing from our guests, though, let's get to our opening briefs. Two Ninth Circuit appeals were up before the U.S. Supreme Court this week, both with plenty of competing amicus support. One once again presents the court with an arbitration dispute, where ambiguous contract language led the Ninth Circuit to allow a group of employees to bring a collective action against their employer in arbitration, in deference to California law's seeming preference. The court's more liberal justices seem to view that result as proper, while the more conservative bloc, and vocally the chief justice, suggested the Federal Arbitration Act might preclude such an outcome. And in closely tracked arguments heard Wednesday with significant ramifications for large-scale class actions, several justices seem skeptical of the use of C-Prey settlements, by which little or sometimes no settlement award money goes to class members, being directed instead, after attorneys take their share, to third parties ostensibly related to the subject matter of a given case. Here, in a privacy suit against Google brought on behalf of 100 million class members, the agreed-upon settlement of 8.5 million would have divided up to about six cents per member, and so was instead directed to groups working on internet privacy issues, like Harvard and Stanford Law Schools and the AARP. But several justices seemed uncomfortable with the system, worrying that such settlements invoke improper incentives or weaken a lawsuit's intended deterrence as proceeds might be directed to a judge's law school alma mater or to organizations a defendant already supports. 
It's on top of the reality that harmed, or at least theoretically harmed, plaintiffs neither see any payment for the vindication of their legal rights, nor have the ability to approve of or direct where settlement funds won by virtue of their harms go. And in addition to viewing such settlements skeptically, Justice has spent a good deal of time querying whether the 100 million plaintiffs here had adequate standing grounds, having in most instances been unaware of and seemingly unharmed by the fact that some of their Google search histories were not as secure as imagined. In the Ninth Circuit itself, the court issued a denial for a rehearing on Bonk in a case that would seem to have the effect of making it easier for wage and hour group plaintiffs to clear the class certification bar. As reported in today's Daily Journal by Nick Sonnenberg, the denial is perhaps most notable as an early look at the jurisprudence of Trump-appointed Judge Mark Bennett, newly ensconced in the circuit's Hawaii posting. Some conservative court watchers were skeptical of the ability of the former Hawaii Attorney General, regarded as a moderate, to help balance a left-leaning court. On Thursday, at least, those worries were assuaged, as Bennett, in the first published Ninth Circuit order bearing his name, joined Judge Carlos Bea's dissent, along with three other Republican-appointed judges, who viewed the case's certification rules as too forgiving for plaintiffs. One other Ninth Circuit note, the Department of Justice will continue to anxiously await the court's action on an injunction against the Trump administration's DACA rescission. The DOJ had repeatedly requested an expedited resolution of the matter and set October 31st, as the deadline after which it would again ask SCOTUS to intervene. Stay tuned to the Daily Journal's Ninth Circuit coverage to follow the agency's next move. Last term, the U.S. Supreme Court considered a record number filings from Amicus Curiae, or Friends of the Court. And for eight years, Arnold and Porter Supreme Court practice members Anthony Franz and Reeves Anderson have tracked this growing trend, wondering from whom these briefs come and what influence they actually have on the court. Those gentlemen join us now. First, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And Reeves, uh, welcome in as well. Glad to be here. Thank you. You you both co-authored a piece here sort of synthesizing the Amicus activity from the past term, a record one in many ways. We'll get into some of the specific ways in which it was a record term for Amicus Curiae. But uh, first, maybe more broadly, I'd like to ask you why you started going about tracking the activity of these parties. This is now, I believe, the eighth year that you've done this sort of synthesis. Um, so, Anthony, what's the what's the, the, the principal motivation for, for keeping tabs on this? And maybe a a bit, uh, what uh, exactly is the, the methods that you go about uh, employing and doing so? Yeah, you know, great. Um, well, you know, we didn't intend to do this every year for the last eight years. It just kind of t- took off after we, we did the first one uh, so, so long ago. And we started with the idea that we write a lot of amicus briefs and we regularly um, practice for the court. And we were interested to see what captured the justices' attention. And so we wrote the first article, which was, uh, there's a lot written about amicus practice, but we thought just looking at the actual briefs and seeing how the justices uh, went and how the justices cited them would provide us insights and uh, also um, insights to others who file amicus briefs for the court. In some senses, this is the Supreme Court is perhaps the most scrutinized court in the world. It's been looked at from, you know, uh, perceptively every imaginable angle. But this is a new lens that we hadn't explored before. It's it's a new way of looking at the court's practice, or at least a slice of the court's practice, uh, seeing who's participating, seeing what they're saying, 
and seeing what the justices take away from that. And so, you know, one key part of our job is to understand, you know, what moves the court uh, and so we can represent our clients best. And this is another way for us to dive beneath the surface and, and really scrutinize that question. Yeah, you, you both bring an interesting and unique perspective to writing an article like this, working before the court and representing parties. I'd be curious to ask you what, maybe Reeves, how attorneys representing litigants before the court tend to view amicus filings. People actually hear on this show next um, a couple of professors that do work talking about how often parties and amicus work together, but also I imagine that many amicus are sort of independent parties. I'd just be curious to know how attorneys representing parties just tend to tend to view the folks that uh, that do step in as those a third party am- amici uh, Reeves. I'd say from the party perspective, they're bordering on indispensable at this point, and those play out in the numbers. So one of the findings we had in this year's review is for the first time in the eight years we've looked at amicus practice, every single merits case that was argued in front of the Supreme Court last term had amicus support, had at least one brief. The numbers have ranged over 90 percent since we started, but this is the first one where you know, no, kef, no case was left without a friend. And so from the party perspective, I think you're you're seeing it play out that it's you know almost a necessary piece to have. And I think it's because of the unique function of the Supreme Court. Unlike some other courts that decide individualized cases, the Supreme Court, I think, sees its institutional role as deciding issues. And those issues extend beyond the facts of any particular case that they happen to see in front of it. And what amici often bring to the table is the broader perspective beyond the litigants' own views. So particularly with interest groups, they'll say, yes, here is the case before you. Let me tell you about the real-world implications of a ruling in one direction or the other. And I think that is a, a useful guide for the court to understand the ramifications of the issue that they're deciding that day so that five years down the road, they're not surprised to hear about some ripple effect. So this is a the amicus practice is a manner in which parties or, or interested parties that are not actually in front of the court can convey to the court the importance or the risks associated with the case of the day. I'll just add that, you know, there's been a, a real uh, sophisticated change in the way amicus practice runs, and I think in the last 10 years, and Professor uh, Allison Larson and Neil Devins have kind of surveyed recently how modern Supreme Court amicus practices work in, in, in an article called The Amicus Machine. And I think that ref- that article, which, which interviewed a number of uh, Supreme Court practitioners, shows how the process has changed, how important it is. And, you know, one of the roles of when you're representing a party in the Supreme Court is, is you, you want to get to the extent amicus contact you or have an interest, you, you want to try and make the court's job easier by not having 20 briefs on the exact same thing or avoiding duplication. So, um, so there's this kind of interplay between party and amicus counsel that, that, um, you know, the amicus help the parties and that they're providing and the court by providing a broader perspective. But at the same time, the parties can help the amicus by, you know, kind of making sure they're, they're, points they can coordinate with each other they can they can avoid duplication and avoid having you know the justices having to swim through too many briefs on the same topics and and actually work together to you know just make the whole process more efficient 
In fact, uh, Professors Larson and Evans will be up on, on the episode next, so that can serve as a, a bit of a preview. Um, <laughs> Anthony, could I ask you one more broad question before we dig into OT 2017? Is that one of the, the main trends you've seen over the past eight years working on some of this tracking is that there's been a heightened level of sophistication in the amicus approach? What other kind of broad 30,000-foot level trends have you noticed over the past almost decade now? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think to give give it to you know, your audiences, you know, put it in perspective. You, if you think about amicus practice in like the 1950s, there were hardly any amicus previous 1960s. The same thing, and so where today you often see. Um, amicus briefs, you know, over a hundred amicus briefs filed in a, you know, one of the marquee big cases, you know, back then Brown versus Board of Education, you had six amicus briefs, Roe v. Wade, you had 23. And over time, it has gradually um, ebbed up. And in the in the 90s, you started to see um, a higher um, participation rate. But I think in the last decade, you have seen this really tremendous increase for a couple reasons. One, I think it's you've had uh, in recent years, more blockbuster cases, you know, big uh, societal issues uh, like healthcare, the court considering same-sex marriage, affirmative action, and that naturally draws diverging interest groups uh, on on uh, questions that kind of have very big implications for society as as a whole. But you also seen just the the change in in how Supreme Court practice is run, and you've seen. You know, the last 10 years or, or so, large firms like our firm, our own Porter, have dedicated separate, you know, specialized practices focused on Supreme Court and appellate work. And I think p- part of what happens there is, is, is the offshoot is, is, is that clients become more aware of amicus practice and are more sophisticated because they have lawyers they might have gone to on other issues advising them, though, this case is coming up that involves this issue and here's how amicus practice works. And clients are very sophisticated now about the, the, the practice and understand it much more than they did in the beginning. And so I, th- I think that's shown in the, in the last eight years, we have seen this, this uptick as well. And, you know, there's probably any number of reasons for it, but those are the, the, the couple I say. Reeves may have others. I, I think you know, to follow on with what Anthony was saying, I think the, the specialization and maybe the, the professionalization of a, a particularized Supreme Court bar has, has increased access to the court. Folks want to be heard. They want to be heard on the issues that affect their business or their industry, and they want to be heard on the hot button issues of the day. And I think now more than ever, there is a core and growing group of legal professionals that specialize in doing this. And they know how to both identify potential amici, reach out to them, and they know how to, to, to file those cases. I think it would be unthinkable 20 years ago for uh, a citizen or company to think that they could just talk to the Supreme Court on an issue that could radically affect their lives. Today, that's almost become the norm. And I think that that explains some of the large, I mean, just almost exponential growth in amicus participation. But it also, I I think, wouldn't have the same effect if the justices weren't listening, if there weren't some indication that these uh, mountains of briefs that Anthony and I are talking about weren't actually read and digested and taken into consideration. And so I think it's a a two-way street. One, the increased access through a professional Supreme Court bar. And the second is some indication that the justices read these and, you know, could it could affect uh, the way they understand 
understand the case, if not the ultimate decision. Then maybe we could could jump to that point, the level to which these amicus briefs are noticed and and have some influence on the justices on on the court. Reeves, in your your piece, you guys wrote that it seemed this term more than ever before. In fact, those briefs were cited in, in opinions. Tell me a bit about that and, and maybe which of the briefs tended to get, get noticed this term. Thanks. And, and I think there's a, a caveat in store before we dive into this. It's that citation, uh, whether a justice cites a brief or mention it, is a pretty rough proxy for influence, right? That's the question that people really want to get to, or do these cases influence the court and, and have some effect on the decision? And there's no way necessarily to get inside the justice's mind and know the answer to that question. And so what we are doing is looking for a proxy for that, which is, do they talk about them? Which indicates that they read them. Justices obviously have a limited quantity of time to devote to something, and if they spend their time on reading a dozen or in some cases a hundred amicus briefs in a case, it must mean that it matters. And I, you know, no one thinks that they're wading through every page of every brief. Uh, that's what law clerks are for. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that what we're talking about here is, is a very indirect way of looking at the, the justice's reliance. It's just whether they mention it or cite it in a case. And that's what our, that's what our articles look at. But a couple of trends nevertheless emerge. This year, some justices talked on the bench during oral argument about particular amicus briefs. The effect it, for instance, in the travel ban argument, one of the amicus briefs was highlighted several times by Justice Breyer to talk about the particular instance that a family had had, the challenges a family had had getting an exemption that was allowed under the law. And so it was used as a very specific case study, I think, on the implications of the government's argument. So not only do we learn from that, obviously that brief was read, but it was, again, a lens through which Justice Breyer, at least in his questioning there, was thinking about the issues in the case. Often, those are the kinds of briefs that tend to get cited by the justices in their opinions. It's what we call, and we didn't deem this term, but it's called legislative facts, the facts of the world uh, that may not necessarily be present in the case. And often, um, and Anthony can go into a bit more detail here, this is very much his expertise, uh, looking at what facts are pulled out. But for instance, how many people had access to the internet 20 years ago versus today? Or what percentage of online sales take place in, in, in the marketplace? Those are things that I think the, the justices find as useful context or backdrop for their decisions, and those often tend to you know, either get discussed at argument or an interesting new legal question that happened a couple times this year. A couple of professor briefs introduced new potential legal arguments or reasoning, and some of the justices picked up on those and, and pressed the advocates pretty hard to explain why that third perspective uh, isn't something that they should be considering or wouldn't potentially you know, dis- dispose of the case. I'll I'll just uh, jump on to what Reeves was saying. I, I, what what I've seen as far as the briefs that get cited is it's it's rare that the what we call the Me Too brief gets cited, which is a, a brief that it basically makes similar legal arguments to the ones the parties make. The parties get lengthy briefs, and it 
it in occasional instances it's it, it may be worthwhile to make you know argue the merits of the legal questions but at least as far as the briefs that get that get seem to get the attention of the justices they involve things that amplify something the parties say put something the parties uh, are discussing in a real world context or identify potentially unintended consequences of um, a ruling that could go one way or the other that that the parties may not care about but some other group might and so we see a lot of the legislative facts um, and uh, but, and that can just there's a variety of things they seem to to appreciate uh, and cite briefs that include surveys of laws. So, you know, to know that, oh, I'm ruling on this state statute that has implications for issue A. Um, sometimes it's helpful to know what the all the other states uh, law is on the same issue. Um, and so you saw that again, this term uh, with them citing justices citing briefs that pr- provide compilations of tax laws or Indian land bills or or statutes on um, state state statutes on pr- uh, criminal procedural issues that type of thing, and you also uh, this term as in the past you the justices will cite briefs that that provide kind of a, a reality check or real real world check on how certain things work, you know, and so this term, they cited briefs from industry groups on, you know, how a currency exchange system works or um, citing a gaming organization about the history of gambling. And so those are the ones, from my point of view, that tend tend to get noticed. They, you know, briefs by professors do um, do often get attention, and they will sometimes raise legal or jurisdictional questions that weren't briefed by the parties. And I think part of that is is that the, the justices likely appreciate people who have dedicated their lives to a particular given field, and the justices themselves, you know, they have to deal with issues ranging from patent to ERISA to criminal law to basically uh, any area of the law you can imagine. And, you know, if you're not familiar with some highly specialized area, it, it, it might be helpful to understand what someone who's dedicated their professional career as a scholar um, thinks of a given issue. And so um, you do see a a good bit of attention to professor briefs. One more thing I would just hope to pull out there in terms of the briefs that get noticed. You note one shift, whereas maybe previously most of the non-party amicus briefs that the court might cite or a reference and an argument tended to come from the Solicitor General's office, the, the government, those gray briefs they filed. But you say here in this term, um, a, a noted, a notable uh, larger amount of, of the private amici, the green briefs were referenced. Is that you think, uh, Anthony, something, a function of um, just the fact that there are, are more of those briefs now or also that they're filed by by, by some of these, uh, you know, increasingly by Supreme Court bar veterans? What do you think might explain that? Well, I still think that the the solicitor briefs by the Office of the Solicitor General get more attention, and on a um, proportional level, they get cited at a much higher percentage. But they they just happen to file a lot fewer briefs than all of the green briefs, and briefs can give it get into the numbers. But I think that there's so many green briefs filed that they may get you know get cited. But on a percentage level, this term will be about you know 12 percent um, of all of the briefs green briefs that were cited uh, that were filed got cited. 
so, but I, I, I do think that part of getting attention can, and studies tend to back this up, is when you're trying to pluck out a gem from this pile of, of hundreds and hundreds of briefs, you know, the, the law clerks understandably might look for, for, for proxies to determine what briefs may be the most, uh, the, you know, have the higher quality or provide the most useful information. And a couple of the proxies they use is, you know, is the, is the Amica themselves known for filing uh, quality briefs? And there are uh, many repeat players, um, and surveys of the clerks suggest that they, they have views of, of certain organizations known for quality briefs. And second is, is the, is the advocate who's filing the brief known for quality briefs? And so that's as, just as the justices might call out an advocate at oral argument, as Reeves was saying, you know, it's when the clerks or the justices are, are wading through the, the piles, uh, the, you know, if a particular advocate happened to write the brief and, and they're known for, for, for quality submissions, it's likely going to get more attention. To, to follow up on that, I think the lines between the Solicitor General's office and private practice are, I think, more blurred than they ever have been. You've got some of the top Supreme Court advocates in private practice now who are former Solicitor Generals, Craig Garr, Paul Clement, Don Verrilli, Ted Olson, Seth Waxman. These are, these are now private practitioners, and they trained in the Solicitor General's office. And what the Solicitor General's office has as an institutional advantage, I think, are two primary things. One is the confidence of the justices. They've appeared so many times. They, they have a reputation for both quality, um, you know, consistent quality, and uh, precision that I think gives the justices confidence in relying on submissions by that court. The second is they understand because they are this is this is their primary job. They understand what is useful to the justices. And I think both as a training ground for folks who've now gone into private practice and also the folks who have looked at those examples from the Solicitor General's office that were cited very often uh, and have incorporated those into their own private practice. Um, I think that's why you're seeing uh, an increased percentage of what we call the green briefs. You referenced the, the gray covers of the U.S. government's briefs. The private party briefs are green. We're seeing an increased percentage of the green briefs because the private practice is, is developing that level of professionalism. And as Anthony said, in some sense, gaining the trust and confidence of the justices, these repeat players who, you know, time after time, put in useful information in amicus briefs and do it in a way that's accessible to the court. Uh, I think you, you're seeing more of the private party briefs looking like the Solicitor General briefs than vice versa. So you, you say that, uh, that more and more of those green briefs have, have merited the trust and the confidence of the court. Well, during a, a lesser notice portion of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, this is something that you both referenced in your piece. One senator, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, was a bit more suspect when it came to amicus practice, worrying that the influence of perhaps uh, dark money or just powerful and, and, and wealthy interest groups could sort of distort or, or unduly influence the sorts of briefs that uh, they get before the court or tilt the court in one direction or, or, or the other. Anthony, uh, to what extent is that the sort of thing that uh, folks in the Supreme Court bar uh, do or, or should worry about? Well, I think that what you see in amicus practice isn't one one you know side or the or the other you know filing briefs. The the amicus briefs span the ideological spectrum, 
And, you know, the, the first footnote in um, Supreme Court briefs under the rules requires you to disclose, you know, if anyone other than the uh, amicus funded, you know, provided funds or financing for the brief. So in, in, in my experience, that's uh, uh, everyone takes that that disclosure very seriously. And I don't know, Freeze, if you have anything else on that, but uh, I, I think in general, what, what you're seeing is with a professional bar of repeat players, it's not just one, one side of an issue or the other that is that is getting representation and so the the justices cite briefs from from groups that people would view as uh, leaning in one way or the other i I agree completely i think there's a a very good balance in in the court and i think the you referenced sort of the the influence of money and uh on the process this is supreme court amicus practices different in in a very true sense than the ability to spend more money on a topic in the other branches. Your amicus brief can only be so long. You can only use so many words and only talk on so many subjects, and you have to do it in a very public way. And I think that that has a tempering effect. In some senses, you know, in the political realm, there may be a thought that if you can flood the airwaves with an ad campaign, that can have you know a, 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 an influence for the candidate you are looking to support. I think the opposite could be true in some senses for amicus practice. If you put in a hundred briefs uh, on the same topic over and over, they lose their uh, lose their potency. They don't sort of multiply in volume. In some ways, having a very uh, targeted and thoughtful approach is more persuasive uh, than just bombarding with volume. And so, you know, to Anthony's point, I think there you're seeing a very good balance where the justices are getting the perspectives of all sides, which I think is good as an institutional matter. But also there are sort of structural limitations. Anthony mentioned the disclosure footnote. That's a key one. But also the fact that amicus briefs need to persuade and not just exist. And I think that's the other the other uh, structural limit on how much the influence, the, the amicus practice can be manipulated, for instance. And just just a, one addition is, is a good amount of the um, amicus work is done pro bono. And so um, so you have, I, I think, in, in most cases, what I've seen in looking at the briefs, uh, as we do every year, is you tend to, you, you tend not to have a disproportionate number of briefs on one side and uh, compared to the other, they tend to be fairly comparable on most uh, on uh, most issues, and you tend to have a, a a similar proportion of highly regarded organizations on on either on uh, either side of the um, of the briefs. Okay, maybe then starting to to wrap up, Reeves, could I ask you if the the amicus briefs this term have increased in, in being noticed more and perhaps cited more, which of the justices uh, seem to like them the most, uh, seem to refer to them in argument or, or in their opinions the most? So we've been tracking this for the last you know seven years to see not just what amicus briefs are coming in, the inputs, but the outputs as well, which justices are citing them and for what purposes. And, you know, this is a small sample set. Justices don't write a lot of opinions each year, so it's always risky to draw conclusions from a small sample set. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you aggregate over a number of years, you do start to see some trends. And, you know, there are a couple justices that 
tend to always rise toward the top of the amicus pile. Justice Ginsburg uh, cites amicus briefs in about half of her cases if you aggregate it over a number of terms. There are other justices who don't. Justice Thomas will almost always be on the low end. Every year we've looked at it. In the last couple of years, he's only cited briefs by the Solicitor General's office. He hasn't cited any green briefs. And so you do see some of those trends. The, the court lost one of its most prolific amicus citers in Justice Kennedy last year. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how the newest justices, where they fall in on the spectrum. So it's not just the justices, but I think there's a correlation with the kind of cases they write in as well. As Anthony said, the hot button cases, especially the social and, and civil rights cases, tend to attract a lot of amicus attention. Uh, 5-4 cases decided by the Supreme Court will have a much higher citation rate of amicus briefs than the 9-0 case. 9-0 uh, cases tend to, you know, the, the justices agree on both the legal decision and perhaps on the implications as well and aren't looking for a just additional justification from amicus briefs for their decision. 5-4, you're going to have a discussion. You're going to have a majority opinion. You're going to have a dissent. And both sides are collecting and curating the support for their side. And that's where amicus briefs tend to play both the biggest substantive role and then the biggest quantitative role. Those are the cases where we tend to see them cited the most. Then perhaps just one last one to close. Um, Anthony, you can start and, and Reese, feel free to, to weigh in. As you look forward, do you have any thoughts as to what trends you might be tracking next year around this time or over the next few years as you're looking at uh, amicus activity? I think we're going to see a lot of more of the same. Um, I don't know that we've reached the, the top of the record number of filings, uh, but I feel like we're in the vicinity. But I think a lot of it's going to be driven by the cases that uh, the court grants for review and the, you know, the more, you know, big, quote, big cases that, that are being heard is going to affect the amicus rate. And we saw that last year when there was the first real dip we've seen um, in the generally upward trajectory uh, because there wasn't a lot. There was an eight-member court and there was a, um, fewer kind of big-ticket marquee cases. Um, so I don't see a, a tremendous change. there. If there is any change in the works, the Supreme Court just proposed, um, put out for comment, a proposed rule change that would reduce the the number of words in both merits briefs and merits amicus briefs. And so that could, you know, lessen the amount of reading that the, the clerks have to do on the front end, screen these things to make the briefs a little bit shorter. But as far as overall, you know, trends, I think we'll, we'll likely see a, a more of just kind of a tremendous number of briefs being filed and the justices continuing to um, to cite them at a, at a pretty pretty uh, substantial rate. I agree. You know, it's last year we saw 890 amicus briefs submitted on the merits and argued cases. That's 14 amicus briefs per case. And I think so long as the justices continue to cite them, mention them at oral argument, uh, and they see at least they're perceived to have some role in the decision-making process. Uh, I don't see any indication that the, the trend is going to stop. I think people want to have their voices heard, and so long as they perceive that the, the court is, is wrestling with the issues that they care about, I think there's a benefit both to being heard and then the opportunity to influence. 
and so far people are are speaking with their with their time and with their money by filing these cases over the last eight years we've seen sort of year after year as anthony said our headline was always the same. It's another record-breaking year. It's another record-breaking year. We finally saw a dip when we had an eight-member court, and I think Miki were concerned about 4-4 splits and, and conserved their resources. Um, now that we have the, a full court of nine again, we expect to you know see see the trend continue for the foreseeable future. Okay, well, we'll stay tuned and hopefully hear from you then again uh, next year. But we'll leave it there for now from Arnold and Porter. Uh, Anthony France, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. And Reeves Anderson, thank you as well. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate it. Allison Orr Larson and Neil Devins are professors of law at William & Mary Law School. And Professor Larson is currently detailed to Harvard Law School this fall in a piece they co-authored for the Virginia Law Review entitled The Amicus Machine. They write that amicus practice, though ostensibly an organic and democratic procedure through which interested third parties independently contribute unique insights to guide the Supreme Court. Instead, the situation is more coordinated and pre-planned than one might think, and in many ways dominated by a fairly small homogenous group of SCOTUS attorneys. Despite that, Professor Larson and Devins argue that the amicus machine is a good thing. They're here to tell us why. Professor Larson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And Professor Neil Devins from the William & Mary Law School and the author of a number of works on the Constitution and the Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Devins, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Professor Larson, you've written a good amount on, on information dynamics, the way information reaches the Supreme Court and the impacts that such information has on its decision-making process. One avenue, of course, um, that information reaches the high court is via amicus filings, which have increased in number in recent years. A couple of years ago, you and Professor Devins penned the, the piece entitled The Amicus Machine. Um, so let's start there. What is the amicus machine and what might surprise people about just how it works? Well, the amicus machine, and you can say amicus or you can say amicus, we don't judge. Um, <laughs> but the amicus machine is our shorthand way of describing a coordinated, orchestrated effort among Supreme Court specialists to get the voices that the justices want to hear from, like as amici, to get those people and those organizations to file briefs at the right moment in time in the cases that the court has agreed to hear. So it's a, it's a supplement to the traditional story where uh, amicus briefs are like lobbyists and they come from interest groups and they're sort of organically grown that way. Our story is... Um, sort of updating that narrative and explains that it's not really an accident anymore. It's much more intentional. I think we use this analogy of a conductor of an orchestra. So when the court grants cert, the conductor thinks, well, what is it that these justices are going to want to hear? And how do we get the most important voices uh, articulating those points to the court? And then that happens in a in a calculated way. That part of the machine also is the notion that it's self-perpetuating in that the Supreme Court hears so few cases that filing amicus briefs is one of the principal mechanisms in which a Supreme Court attorney appears before the court, and Supreme Court practice is tied in some measure to amicus practice and the ability of law firms that have Supreme Court boutiques to recruit top-flight lawyers to those lawyer groups is tied into the fact that they are filing briefs in the Supreme Court, and again, due to the lack 
of cases, uh, many of those briefs are amicus briefs. So it sort of perpetuates itself on the business side as well. Okay. So it's safe to say that maybe if one thinks about the way the amicus filing system works, if one were to say, well, I imagine it as just different interested groups or parties are out there. They see a case as granted cert. They think, gee, that could impact my organization. I should file an amicus filing. Professor Larson, you're saying that's not usually, in most cases, how it works. Usually there's some sort of pre-orchestrated coordination by the party um, that uh, has already figured out that it would be useful to have that group file a, a supporting brief. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the other way happens too. Like sometimes it does happen spontaneously, but our more often than you would suspect, you have um, a person behind the curtain orchestrating the whole process. And the words we use, the verbs are wrangling and whispering. So, uh, and we get these, we borrow those phrases from Supreme Court advocates. The wrangling is recruiting the right people, and the whispering is making sure that they have the right message. Um, and that is all part of the machine, as we describe it. Yes, and the machine is particularly relevant in the process of having cert granted. Uh, where there is less knowledge to the broader um, uh, bar and interest groups as to what's up, uh, but lawyers seeking cert know that having amicus support is particularly important. So uh, the machine is up and running, uh, in particular at the search stage and at the merit stage. It's it's very much present as well, um, but at the merit stage, there are many more groups um, outside of uh, the actual parties to the case who will also participate. But at the search stage, a little bit more uh, in the party's control. If the, the theory of uh, amicus filings is that these are sort of independent groups that are, are presenting their own theoretically neutral or divorced from the party's interests of views, you know, the, the idea that there are folks sort of coordinating those briefs, and in particular, Professor Larson, that there are those whisperers that kind of ensure mm -hmm. the right content goes into those briefs is an interesting, perhaps concerning thing to to, to note. To what extent do the, the, the whisperers, those attorneys working with the parties, control the actual content that goes into those uh, supporting amicus briefs? Well, I think it's a collaboration. There's, there's a Supreme Court rule on point here that forbids um, or it requires disclosure, rather, um, for any time a party lawyer is authoring or financing an amicus brief. So that's a that's sort of a red line to the advocates that they can whisper, but they can't author. Um, and I think one of our one of the people we interviewed said it's okay to do um, what is it comment bubbles, but not track changes. Um, so. <laughs> It's, it's a fine line, but there is there is a rule on point about how much whispering can actually bleed into authorship. The Supreme Court wants to know about that. And, you know, that's telling that the Supreme Court has that rule because it should let us know that there is sort of that they they want to know where, where the information is coming from. That's important to them. You also write that uh, that one perhaps driving force behind the, the growth of amicus filings is that um, those briefs can present say, you know, um, apart from the main arguments in the case, just general, maybe quantitative studies, empirical surveys that, that uh, mm -hmm. give some evidence as to how those arguments kind of play out in the real world. And you say that the, this court in particular is a very empirically minded Supreme Court, which leads to the need for uh, what are often referred to as, as Brandeis briefs. Uh, quickly, what is the, a Brandeis brief and, and why are, have they become so important, uh, Professor Larson? 
So a Brandeis brief, it gets the name from sort of a pioneer brief filed by Brandeis before he was a justice and he was a lawyer. And it was a brief that contained almost entirely factual information without legal argument or not really restrained, restricted to the legal argument. And those um, at once were sort of seen as an anomaly are now uh, very, very common. The Supreme Court seems hungry for information about how facts in the real world are going to be affected by their rulings. So it makes sense that if they're interested in that, there's there's going to be there's going to be people ready to supply them. So the people we spoke to when researching this article gave us the impression that you have to have your slate of experts, almost like a trial, a trial attorney finding expert witnesses at trial. Like you have to have your Brandeis briefs lined up so that you can get the right quote unquote expert to the justices to give them the information that they're already already curious about. If um, the situation that that your article describes is that many, if not most, of the amicus filers in in the current system and in the amicus machine are friends um, of the party, as opposed to uh, not only understood concept of being friends of the court. Was there ever a time where that was the case that the the parties that submitted these uh, theoretically neutral briefs or um, disinterested briefs were just advising the court and not helping, not uh, you know, looking to assist one of the parties or advance one of the the arguments? Uh, and when? If that was ever the case, did that change? So you have to go a long way back. <laughs> um, I think, and there's some debate from historians about exactly when this happened, but certainly by the time that we had the amicus in America, um, it was more of an advocacy tool as opposed to the original neutral aid to the court. So, you know, back in the day, as they say, <laughs> as in back in 16th and 17th century England, you might have a lawyer standing in the courtroom who is shepherdizing the cases or just providing additional information, almost like you would imagine a law clerk to do now. Um, but that has not been the case in America for quite some time. And at the very least, in the 1930s, you have this new understanding of the amicus as the client and not and not the professional lawyer. So it's, it's everybody sort of knows by that point that it's being used as an adversarial tool. Right. And it's also important to recognize that there are really very few amicus filings uh, in so recent decades. Um, you know, uh, in our article, we note how, you know, cases like Brown, Roe, Locker, some of the uh, landmarks of the Supreme Court uh, had virtually no amicus filings. So the amicus machine is a fairly recent vintage, and it's tied to the notion that Amicus briefs help one or the other parties, so the lawyers should seek out uh, briefs that will support uh, their positions. There are some concerns that have been voiced with the amicus machine. I've read some from from different quarters. One um, raised by by the opinionated Judge Richard Posner uh, is that these briefs, you know, when they clearly come from friends of the parties rather than you know friends of the court, they shouldn't be allowed. They're, they're essentially kind of appendices to the party's briefs and, and, and should not be uh, considered by the court um, since they're you know, not really an impartial advisement that the name might suggest. Um, Professor Devins, do you have some thoughts on what problems are prompted or that should come to mind with uh, yeah. the notion there? Well, I think it's important to recognize, as Professor Larson noted earlier, that uh, the court yearns for information, and it's going to seek that information out no matter what. Uh, for 
Professor Larson in another article uh, wrote about how the justices and their clerks make use of Google and the Internet to seek out information. So if you start with the premise that the court is going to issue broad decisions and base those decisions on empirical facts, then, you know, uh, we are already pretty far down the road. And then we need to think about what's the best mechanism to get those empirical facts before the justices. Uh, the lawyers in the Supreme Court bar, the lawyers that are part of this amicus machine, are repeat players before the court who care a great deal about their reputation and are apt to pay uh, close attention to uh, the accuracy of the facts they assert in their briefs. So actually, uh, I disagree with Judge Posner. Um, even if they are associated with the parties to the litigation, you're getting uh, probably better screening for the empirical presentation than you would get from a random Google search. So if it's going to happen, it's happening in uh, you know a, a form that works reasonably well. And it's true, everything Neil said is exactly right, but it's also true that they, um, they're not writing the briefs, presumably, for these other voices. They're recruiting the voices that they want the justices to hear, but the perspectives that are being offered are perspectives of people not before the court. So it's true that the fingerprints of the parties are on the briefs, but I, I think it's an overstatement to say that this is just an uh, appendix to the party brief. I don't think that's an accurate depiction of what's going on. Professor Larson, in terms of the, the sort of empirical data brought forward in a lot of amicus filings, you wrote in 2014 for the University of Virginia Law Review that the court should be a little bit skeptical in, in sort of buying wholesale the arguments and studies presented in some of these briefs. You mentioned that uh, briefs written by, say, interest groups might, might uh, rely on studies conducted by that interest group or might rely on information that group will not uh, make public or might be relying on other not peer-reviewed, not terribly reliable or robust science. Um, to what extent are, are you still worried that uh, you know, the partiality of some of these parties might incentivize them to, to put forward a factual briefs on somewhat suspect grounding? Yes, I definitely worry about that. Um, I worry very much about, you could call them creative factual claims or just unreliable factual claims, but claims that are sort of dubious. And I think that that is a growing concern of the court, as I wrote in that article. Um, once One thing that surprised me is I actually think relying on members of the Supreme Court bar in this way, it helps mitigate that concern. So, for example, because these members of this sort of sophisticated club have an interest in protecting their reputation, both with each other and also with the justices, they're less likely to make dubious claims and you know, creative claims, and they're, they're more likely to cite reliable evidence. So to the extent you are worried about junk science and amicus briefs like I am, I actually think the amicus machine can can make you worry a little bit less, at least from those particular briefs. Great. Um, so Professor Larson, you, you mentioned the interests of that a small class of Supreme Court bar members. Uh, one other kind of counterargument or one worry that arises when speaking about this issue is that the interest of that small group tends to be sort of homogenous, and it's a group of uh, elite like-minded men and women that uh, that might create a situation where the briefs uh, issuing from that small group 
aren't terribly representative of the maybe legal community at large. And that kind of runs against the spirit, it would seem, of the amicus brief system where really anyone can put forth their their views. It's sort of a seemingly a democratic type um, arrangement. Um, and then in addition to that, the fact that the, the views of that group might be homogenous, one uh, other concern related to that is that those interests might be sort of uh, uniformly pro-business because those um, attorneys are fairly well-heeled and well-compensated by the the folks that hire them to write their briefs, those could be you know, sort of most often corporate entities and, and rich parties. What are your thoughts on, on some of those particular concerns? So the clubby concern that this is elite and clubby and anti-democratic, we acknowledge that that's a cost of the amicus machine, but it's, it's sort of a cost anytime you have specialization. And what we argue is it's a cost that's outweighed by the benefits. We do push back a little bit on the claim that these members of the bar are leading the court in a pro-business way. And we actually think that that might have the cart before the horse and that these are just smart lawyers who take their signals from justices and the justices are the ones that are pro-business at this time, at this moment in time. And so we're not convinced that the other story of the the pro-business elite pushing the court is, is maybe that maybe that has it backwards. Um, I do want to say that there there's a important important counterweights also in the amicus machine. And those are the clinics, the clinics at some of the at the law schools where you have groups of very talented students who work with Supreme Court litigators to take on interests that are probably not pro-business. Uh, they do it pro bono. And that's another important factor to consider when you're thinking about whether this club, which I admit is anti-democratic to have it in the hands of this elite group, but whether they're pushing the court in a pro-business way, um, I'm not sure that tells the whole story. Sure. Yeah, certainly uh, listeners uh, mostly out here to our show in California are familiar with the, the clinic at Stanford run by Jeffrey Fisher. Exactly. Yeah, uh, that's the leading one. That's the original, the pioneer. Um, one other, I guess, area where in the article you write that there's a, a benefit to the amicus machine is that it can can help the, the Supreme Court identify cases that really it it ought to take, and, and that's helpful in particular because less often these days there are true circuit splits that have traditionally been the places the court has looked to to find cases they need to weigh in on. Um, I hadn't actually realized that that is the case. And how how does the amicus machine help uh, help there, Professor Larson? Well, this is all about the role of a law clerk. So as everybody knows, the law clerks help the justices immensely when they're figuring out which cases they want to take. They write something called pool memos where they summarize the positions of the parties and then they make ref- they make recommendations. They, being the law clerks, make recommendations to the justices. And the traditional like bread-and-butter cert grant indicator is the circuit split where law clerks who are young and just out of law school are actually pretty adept at figuring out whether the circuit split is real or not by reading the cases and seeing if they disagree. Um, but as circuit splits become less common, and I think there's a bit of an empirical debate about if that's true, but several of the justices have indicated that, then the other reasons for granting cert, like if you have a case of national importance or that's going to be um, very consequential for an industry, those reasons are perhaps more nuanced and harder for a law clerk to identify. So a value of the machine is you have sophisticated actors who can give the law clerks a signal, hey, we really care about this, so much so that we've written an amicus brief at the cert stage, and that that signal can then help the law clerks to identify a worthy case for the justices, apart from the ones that are um, that come out of a circuit split. 
the the filings at that stage you write in, in this article, the, the number of those, the increase in frequency of that phenomenon, that is fairly new. You see, even if uh, we've had a lot of amicus briefs for a while, um, they commonly did not come at, at that stage, correct? Yes, that's right. That's a sort of the secret is out, I think, now um, that amicus briefs are very valuable at the cert stage. It didn't used to be the case. Um, they used to be kind of rare, but now they're becoming much more common at the cert stage. And again, it's those in the know <laughs> um, who are filing the briefs at that stage. Okay. Then maybe just one last one with the with the amicus machine here, really humming. Um, doesn't seem like there'll be any um, diminishment in, in the, the numbers of these briefs anytime soon. So what sort of uh, other trends might you be looking at as you continue to to pay attention to this um, phenomenon? Well, one sort of global point is we've um, pointed out a what we call as a machine, but it's really a system that's sort of organically developed over time. That doesn't mean it's perfect. And so you can imagine the court wanting to institutionalize certain voices and make sure that they heard from others if they're not getting them from the members of the Supreme Court bar. So that's one thing to look for. Maybe we'd have more briefs from groups that represent traditionally underrepresented groups. Um, another trend I, I like to look for is is the role of the state solicitor generals and the state attorney generals. So as as Neil has written about before, those um, those roles are changing and they're changing in a more political way. And I suspect that means their role in the front of the Supreme Court in filing amicus briefs is going to change as well. So I'm going to keep my eye on that. Okay, well, we will as well then. Professor Allison Orr Larson, thanks very much for joining the show. Thank you for having us. And Professor Neil Devins, thank you as well. My pleasure. And that is our podcast for November 2nd, 2018. Thanks so much again to all four of my guests, Anthony Franz and Reeves Anderson from Arnold and Porter, and Professors Allison Larson and Neil Devins from William & Mary. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you for tuning in. It is tremendously appreciated. Don't forget that for having listened to the show, one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And don't forget to find us in the various avenues through which you stream your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes and the podcast app and just about anywhere else you tend to find this sort of media by searching for Weekly Appellate Report or also by searching Daily Journal. Finding us there, subscribing to the show, liking us, reviewing us, and rating us is a tremendously helpful way for other folks to find the podcast. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.